Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lance. This episode, we speak to an incredible advocate named Juanita Bachelor. She's from Springfield, Massachusetts, Lance, and she is one of the toughest advocates that I've heard of uh, and that, I, that we've spoken to. Her son, Daryl, was killed from random gun violence at age 23. Yes, Daryl was shot in 2014. It was random gun violence, as you said, and our guest Juanita is Daryl's mother, and when her son was murdered by this random gun violence in Springfield, she went on a mission with her sister to uh, get control of the streets, to get control of her community, and to get control of the guns that are just out of control in her neighborhood and in neighborhoods across the country. Her sister, Tangela Clark, is a partner with her on this, and they've led marches, and they've gone through so much tragedy. Uh, in addition to her son being murdered, her niece was shot dead in Springfield on June 26th of this year. And Juanita still goes on. She still marches forward with this fight. And uh, really, uh, like th there have been a handful of interviews that uh, just leave you speechless and heartbroken but motivated and and inspired at the same time and and this one is is right at the top of the list that's right lance and that's why we're airing this one on both missing maura murray and crawl space so if you subscribe to both you'll find it on both uh at some point in uh, the next week and juanita started more it's an advocacy group known as mother overlooked reaching out empowerment and so she started that group in 2018 after the shooting of her son, Daryl Jenkins Jr. But again, before the random gun violence of Tamara Clark, her niece. So again, just shows how strong she is. She fights against gun violence and has for several years. And then her niece is met by random gun violence, which is basically the height of tragedy that I can think of. And I just want to give a quick shout out. We talk about the mayor of Springfield, uh, Dominique Sarno, and uh, we weren't familiar with him because we, we, we're not from Springfield. We're uh, on the other side of the state. A really important shout out to him. He has been labeled the son of Springfield. He's the mayor now. He's been the longest standing mayor in Springfield's history, and he is side by side with Juanita and her family and all of the other families that have experienced this and very rare to see a public official, a mayor be that in, in ingrained, be, be that tight knit to the community. So um, if anybody's listening, who knows Dominique Sarno, <laughs> tell him to tell him to pop this episode on. Uh, and, and if he ever wants to come on the show to talk about this, he's, he's more than welcome. So a quick shout out to him. Absolutely. And you can check out Juanita's work at springfieldjustice.org. And again, this might sound like these are local problems, and some of them specifically are, but the entire viewpoint of what we're talking here, I think, is adaptable more, much more widely. Yeah, and she hits on some very important uh, issues uh, and, and solutions, one of them being uh, educating the, the kids in the community, educating the youths and, and raising them in the community. She's a parent who lost a son, and instead of being broken by that, she's trying to raise the community as as a mother to all all of the future there, like all of the youth there. So, 
very uh very admirable work yes a heartfelt thank you to Juanita and Tangela and all the work that they do so I hope you enjoy this interview hope you're as moved by it as we were thank you very much for listening everybody and again please go to springfieldjustice.org Anita Bachelor, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, your day. Happy Friday. And um, yeah, we've been uh, trying to uh, get together with you for a little bit. We had a preliminary phone call with you. Uh, why don't you fill in the listeners um, so who you are and, and what your mission is? Because uh, it's very important and I feel like more people need to know about what you and and others like yourself are are doing in uh you know in this state and then you know spread out you know you want this to spread out so i'll 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 give you the floor now okay thank you um I'm Juanita Bachelor raised in Springfield mass um my son Daryl Jenkins jr was um twenty three years old and was shot down gunned down in front of our home. Um, June, June 4th, 2014. Um, his case is still not solved. Um, it, there's been a lot of violence in that area where I was staying. And um, he left behind two daughters. He was um, a personal care assistant. He um, did music. Um, he was a father who did brought his daughter to school, um, helped her with her homework. And he, one day he was here and the next day he was taken. And that was the same day he was going to be a pallbearer for my grandmother who had just passed May 29th from cancer. Um, her actual funeral was June 4th and he was killed on June 4th that evening. He was outside a little nervous, getting his hair braided and stuff and talking, taking pictures with his friends. So that's why he was at my home because we were getting ready for the funeral that morning. And it's it's been very difficult since then because more mothers have lost their sons to gun violence. And it's like I'm reliving my son's death every time somebody else's mom, I mean, every time somebody else's son or daughter is killed. How old was Daryl when he was killed? He was 23 years old. Wow, that is really young. And, and you said that he was a, he was a father as well. And, but you said that he, you know, he was taking care of his children. Uh, Where did he get that? Did he get that from you? Did, because 23 years old, I didn't even know, like, I I couldn't even hold a job down. Like I couldn't put gas in my car, let alone take care of children. How how did, where did he get that from? He definitely got it from me. Unfortunately, I had my son when I was 16 and with me working, he had a lot of um, responsibility with watching his younger sister. So growing up, it was, he was like the man in the house. So he learned to cook and wash his own clothes. And he was a very independent 23 year old. I know a lot of 23 year olds don't do that, but yeah, he was very responsible. And he had two daughters at the time he was murdered. His um, oldest had just turned seven and his youngest had just turned one. Oh, it's such a tragedy. I'm so sorry. So much tragedy uh at the same time too did that lead you to start more 
Yes, that's definitely what um, started me at more. I felt that um, the police didn't really tell me um, or the DA or anyone wasn't really there to explain to me how a homicide works, like what, what services I would get or what kind of help or resources I would get after the homicide, there was like no advocates that came out to my house to tell me, this is how it's gonna go down, this is what you need to do. It was just me fundling around while I'm grieving, trying to figure things out. So I didn't want other families to have to go through that. I wanted them to know what was going on and um, be able to help them through their grieving. Refer them with counseling, but still be a space that they can be with people who's really from where they're from and really know how it feels to feel overlooked by the police station or the commissioners or the mayors or even your community even the community because they're so fearful or don't want to snitch you know they keep important information withheld and that's that terrifies a parent knowing that people know what happened but won't say anything you mentioned the community and you mentioned not having any advocates um, i'm assuming you mean advocates from uh you know, law enforcement, the police station coming out to guide you through the process of um, how to, you know, begin this homicide investigation for this tragic event for, you know, with your son. Um, Absolutely. The The number of violent crimes per capita in Springfield is ridiculous. It's 988. That's just the latest um, piece of information, the latest bit of information uh, that that's come out of Springfield, Massachusetts. It's 988 violent crimes per capita. When you heard that because you're nodding right now so you know this you live there it's um, yes. I, I'm I'm from a relatively safe town in Massachusetts so I wouldn't know what to do if I were to start uh, a program like you're starting if I were to start advocating for others I do it feeling kind of safe and feeling like I can do something just because of my environment did you see that number did you recognize that that obstacle that you had to overcome and was that daunting yes i did and it, and, it, and it was but my anger at the time overweight overweighed all of that you know um just wanting justice so bad for my son um that's it started with just the power of wanting justice for him and it just expanded to justice for all and how is uh the hunt for justice in daryl's case going it's it's horribly it's not really going anywhere it's i'm hearing the same thing i heard in 2014 i'm hearing in 2020 from the police people know um but there's nothing much they can really do unless somebody speaks up so that's that's heartbreaking when you're not alone though i mean this is this is yeah this isn't like a a one off where the police are checking in every day and they're saying uh, you know, we're, we're, we're conducting a sting operation for your son. They're so overwhelmed, right? Yeah, there is many, yes, many, many mothers and fathers and children, um, sisters who are fighting for their loved ones who have not, uh, murders have not been solved. And that's why I'm, I'm in the middle because on one point, the community blames the police and the police blame the community. And, um, me, I feel they're both right. I feel the community should speak up, but on the police side, they don't feel safe to speak up. The police don't feel safe to speak up, or? No, I mean, like, for I, I feel for the police 
as what they're saying, the community needs to speak up. And then on the other side where the community is saying that they don't feel safe by the police, so that's why they won't speak up. They don't feel the police will protect them if they speak up and tell what's going on in the streets. Yeah, there, there's a lot of problems with that. If you're to say, oh, I know who's, who shot somebody, and then you turn that in, you go home, you're then at risk uh, before trial and before that person is put away, theoretically. Absolutely. And there's no program in place to keep someone safe uh, if they want to provide information for something like this? No, not really. But we are trying to work on that. I have talked to the mayor and we've been getting um, a bunch of our organizations against gun gun violence have been working together to try and make a vision, a Springfield vision without gun violence. And th- that is definitely one of the things on the list that we're trying to get. Oh, great. Uh, what else is on the list, if you don't mind, Sharon? Um, yes, we have on the list a corner to get back into Massachusetts um, and to Springfield. Um, the wait times for family members that um, are homicide, the waiting for a corner to come. Uh, my son, per- particularly, was out there for six hours. So everybody got to see the family came because we didn't have no corner here. We're asking for a corner to come to be put back here. I I just want to be clear of what you're saying. You this is this is really shocking for some people. Yeah, you're saying your son was murdered. He stayed there on the street for six hours before a coroner could come because there is no coroner there. Yes. Just, and family got to go there. People were. Yep. He and the people recorded, put him on Facebook. Um, so I didn't even get to tell his family on his father's side. People just were jumping the gates and we all like stood out there till like five, six in the morning. And um, when I talked to my detectives about the length of time my son was out there and they told me it's because we didn't, we no longer have a corner here. Was that because of some election or, I mean, I've never heard of such a thing. They said Governor Baker took the corner out. And with the time of death that my son has, people are asleep and they're, they got to come from far. Okay, so who, who actually d- does the, the duty of, of taking a body away then now? The corner, the black truck, corner truck. Okay, so, so there's just one around and then they'll drive around through the state? Oh, my God. Yes, I, yes. Because I, what concerned me, because I thought, it was me, but then I did a remembrance drive in Springfield with like 60 families and all their stories were like mine. They, their child laying in the street because they had to wait for a corner. Some not as long, some maybe three hours, some maybe an hour, but just the length time of laying there looking at your dead child in the street is traumatic. How in the world do you even start a murder investigation when the body has been exposed to absolutely everything for six hours. Um, I don't know. They covered yeah. him up. They covered him up with a black bag. Um, so, but I could still see a sneaker, his foot. So, um, I don't know. That's questions I have to yeah. ask. So detectives were there first, or, or police were there first, an ambulance, and then detectives 
the ambulance was there first. Actually, I, I was there while the ambulance was trying to save my son's life. Um, and they were yelling, ma'am, we're trying, we're trying to, um, we're trying to save him. And then the police came, the police was there and they were like holding me back. Um, and then the de other people, they were putting the black, the, I mean, the yellow tape and they were, um, checking the bullets and stuff on the ground, asking everybody questions, asking me questions. Do I know who would do this? Do, did I see anybody? Um, I couldn't even think of my nephew's names that was out there with him. I couldn't think of nobody's name because I was in such a state of shock. So that's 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 basically what I remember after that for that point. I remember it being a lot of lights, a lot of people just questioning me and telling me they're sorry. Oh, my God. And I can hear the kids crying and my daughter fainted. And she was pregnant with twins. She ended up having her twins. Um, he was killed in June. She had her twins in August. They weren't due till December. Wow. So it was very, like a movie, like so unreal. What was the uh, circumstances? Uh, I know you were shot, but what time of night was this? And was it gang related? Was it random? Um, They think the people might been... Um, there's they said they think it might be gang related far as the people who were shooting maybe getting initiated or right. or just um because like i said the area had started getting real bad with a lot of shootings and my son didn't actually live there he just was there because we were going to the funeral but um they just shot in the crowd from across the street so a female got shot with my son as well she got shot in the face um, so it, he, it was a crowd of kids, my nephews, um, females and everybody. And it was at 12 midnight. I had told my son, he was getting his hair braided. So I told him he had the, um, the girls, the females had to leave. We got to get up early. So he went to walk those girls home and they were outside taking pictures. I guess they didn't actually go walk at, right away. They were taking pictures in front of the house and it was a shooting in the crowd. Do you happen to know what uh, type of gun it was? Was it a handgun or was it like an automatic? I don't know. Hmm. All I know is all the shells were found across the street in somebody's yard across the street from my house. Wow. And had, have you have you talked to that person, to your neighbor? Do they? Yes, I've talked to my neighbor. And even there, people, the older lady, she's like, she's not saying nothing because... She went through this when something with her brother back in the days, and she's too old to go through this kind of stuff. And she just told me to watch. She told me to watch a certain group of people. But that's all she was saying. And the girl who got shot in the face, she lived, but she said she didn't see nobody. And, and I kind of could believe it if they shot from way across the street. Yeah. And uh, your niece, Tamara Clark, she was uh, she was killed recently. Yeah, she was killed June 26th. Um, she was killed uh, at the gas station. She seen somebody she knew, and a car drove up. Um, we believe the target was the guy she was talking to, that she spoke to. He was shot as well. And um, but she didn't lay in the street. They definitely put her in the ambulance. And that's something I don't understand because she was dead already when she hit the ground. 
So I don't know why they didn't wait for the corner for her or maybe because of all the heat I've been given to them about the corner situation that they put her in the ambulance, but she did not have to lay in the street. But that's another sad situation. Juanita, I'm so sorry. This is absolutely surreal. You you had organized this gun march um, or the you know this march against gun violence um, just that same month, and then Tamara was killed just a few weeks later. Yes, two people. Another person was killed on the 17th, June 17th. Someone was shot up. Two motorcycles drove on the side of them and shot them up, blocked them in, and shot them up on Wolverham Road in Springfield, Mass. And then the 26th, um, Tamara, my niece Tamara was shot. Um, one bullet to her heart. And um, yeah, it's very emotional. And doing this organization is very emo- uh, very emotional, um, especially because most of the people, I know them or I went to school with them, like the moms or something, or the kids went to school together or something. So it's it's definitely a difficult thing. When you're organizing something like this, where do you start? Because it feels like, you know, when you're just pounded down by waves in, in the ocean, you know, it's like you, you feel like you caught your breath and then you get hit again and hit again. Where do you where do you start after your son is murdered? What's your first step? Oh, when my when when my son was first murdered, I just me, I just started doing stuff on my own, putting myself out there, um, going to other like um peace marches and uh people would ask me to speak and I would just speak at different um events and just tell my story and how these guns need to get off the street and I plead for help, I'll go on live and ask. And then some moms started reaching out to me or some of the um, leaders in the community were referring to referring me to other people. I started going to the C3 meetings, which are meetings with the, um, the police, Springfield police and the different areas of Springfield. So I started going to the one in Forest Park where my son was killed. And I just started telling them what I was doing and people started reaching out to me. And that's how I started. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these pictures from um, this uh, this march that you had. And you even have the mayor there um, shouting in a megaphone, um, which is pretty powerful, the mayor of Springfield. which But it also makes me wonder, like, if the mayor is screaming that we need change and, and you know, he, he's trying to help, too. Like, how can we not get change if the mayor is literally shouting in a megaphone? Well, when I um, just met with the mayor um, this week, uh, Tuesday, um, he feels we need to get on the court system. Um, the judges, they're locking them up, and the judges and them are letting them out. Um, they did do some big bust on guns, and I was hopeful for that. Like, maybe some bodies will be on those guns, but those people were released as well. So, you know, I'm... I'm not going to knock him um, on my own right now because for me, it seems like he's trying to do something for the community against the gun violence. I mean, he's reached out to me. He hasn't ignored me. He's um, supporting my organization. He has supported my organization. 
I just think it's a difficult situation with it being so easy for people to get to guns because these are not like the regular guns. These are like illegal guns. So it's, yeah. it's even a harder task. But once those guys that are, are um, I forget the word that they call it, but when they are the ones who keep going back for the same thing, a gun charge, they should not be able to come out no more. I don't care what color they are. <laughs> Yeah. And you, you brought up so many points there uh, that we're going to talk about. I just wanted to uh, clarify that the mayor of Springfield is uh, Dominic Sorrow, right? Yeah, I, I'm impressed that, that he's there and, and you got him and everything. It's almost just a little startling that, that he has to yell in a megaphone uh, in order for change to even be approached, I guess was my point. Yeah. And I want to talk about um, your organization more, but you also just mentioned it's very hard to get a handle on the guns that are out there right now because they're illegal guns. Um, how do you even identify that these are illegal guns? Um, well, well, when I because I have at my groups, we have different detectives come in and um, talk to the group, talk to the moms about the different cases or different things of why you're not solving our cases or what's the what can we do what's the and they told us there's something um i guess called ghost guns um and they said they're being they're very popular out here and that's how they think people are getting the guns out here in the streets if anybody wants to know what a ghost gun is, there's a really good documentary that you can look up. I think it's on Netflix. It's called Ghost Guns. Um, it's it's like an it's it's this whole black market uh, industry that is uh, generates millions and millions of dollars. Um, you can you can you can get a gun uh, somewhere else uh, for like seven dollars, and you can sell it for like seven hundred dollars. And you you file everything off of it. It's it's completely untraceable. And you can drop it on the street and you'll never you'll never see it again. So someone could be making like um, 700 times the profit on something like that. And that's it's 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 run rampant like it's they're everywhere. Yeah. And that's what the detectives have told us. Well, tell us about your organization more. OK, more is about fighting for justice, but it's also about healing and um, empowering Um if we're all still angry and distraught um, going through our grieving process, we're not going to be um, accountable or reliable to stand to the mayor. And, you know, you have to talk, even with your angry, you have to be respectful. So I try and work with us on our, on our healing and our emotional, what, like whatever's going on at home, because losing someone could be the person who was paying the rent and now you're struggling. So you're angry, you're grieving. So we work with families on that level. We have group empowerment classes for men and women. Um, we, for the youth, we are starting to try and get, um, well, I was going getting into the schools, working with the school committee um, to just reach out to hopefully give some of the kids a insight on how a mom who lost a child, how it makes them feel, how it tears a family up. And we do marches. Um, June 4th, I was um, received a proclamation for my Remembrance Save Our Street project by City Councilwoman Tracy Whitfield. We plan to help with giving out food bags for these families and being a safe place for the youth to come where they don't have to worry and um, about different things. And also we're making a program 
with like trying to work out a program with arts and cooking and music because a lot of kids like that everybody doesn't play basketball or football or <laughs> baseball some people like to cook and do music and just to try and find ways to get them off the street you know COVID got us a little messed up right now right and uh what does more stand for mother overlooked reaching out empowerment have you ever communicated with uh former gang members or current gang members uh to either reform or uh, if they're former gang members, do they speak to some of the some of the youths in your community? Um, I have not really been able to talk to them. Um, Brother Mah Johnny Muhammad is a person who um, he has a group uh, that crew is called Crew. I forgot what the letters stand for, but they are the people who um, really do that. And they had started to they were going to put me in to start doing those, but COVID stopped that. But yes, that's definitely on my list, my to-do list. We first heard about you and, and your son and, and niece's case uh, through private investigator Lou Barry. Um, yeah, how, how do you know uh, Chief Lou? Um, when I first, when my son first um, was killed, uh, some people from Washington had invited me open, open closed case campaign. They had um, invited me to Washington, where there they put me into a private investigator, Sarah. I forgot her last name. And um, slowly she ended up leaving out, but he never left. Every time he texts me, message, messages me always to if he has any ideas for me or anything. He's a great support system from afar. That's great. And that's yeah, who got us. We yeah, love he Lou. Told me. Yeah, I love him too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he works with um, Sarah anymore. No, uh, no, yeah. he doesn't. Yeah. No. So, yeah. So that's how I met him. And he's still here to this day. He even helped me do some paperwork um, to help me get my nonprofit together. He's been a great, great support system. You know, I'm reading a little bit more about uh, Dominic Sarno, uh, the mayor. Um did you know that he's the longest running mayor in Springfield's history? And I mean, of course, you know this. He was born in Springfield. He's been called the people's mayor. Uh, so I think that you might have the right person at the right time to be helping you out in the right position um, and screaming from that megaphone. Yes, yes. And he also went to my pastor is close with him. He went to school with my pastor's sister. They went to commerce together. So, yeah, he's he's definitely Springfield. <laughs> yeah and it, and it kind of sounds like this is a local problem that we're talking about and, and specifically we kind of are but a lot of the practices that we're talking about can be adapted more widely uh -huh. what advice would you give to somebody from a different area who is dealing with some of these issues um definitely to reach out for some to someone for support um because it's a it's a it's a heartbreaking situation but I would say never give up. I would say never give up. It might seem rough. Um, have faith and stay strong. <laughs> well, you you started off and 
you've told us before that you know you you have this anger and the other mothers the other family members of other victims of gun violence have this anger because uh for many many reasons one of them being is that everyone sort of knows who did it but people just don't want to talk and then you realize who has control over your neighborhood and your children and uh i think a lot of what you're doing that's really overlooked uh generally is how to channel your anger and make that into something positive. And a lot of people will say, you know, you can't be you can't be angry about these things. You have to. But I feel like we're meeting more and more people who who accept that. And they're like, yeah, I'm angry. That's an emotion. My you know, my son died. My daughter died. My you know, my dad died. My mom died. Like it's ang- it makes me angry. I mean, it makes me angry thinking about it. I'm not even in I'm not even close to being in your shoes. Um do you ever seek out any uh, other types of like uh, counselors to to talk to members of your group and to talk to people in your situation? Yes, I do because you're absolutely right. Um, it, it, you're very angry, and I'm still angry because even at times I feel like when my niece and um, the other young man was killed right after June fourth. And I was just like so proud that June 4th, uh, that what I was doing and then they got shot. It was like, what am I doing this for? It's, it's like, I felt like I'm not making no change or nothing. So I did, I went back to my um, pastor who's my, who counsels me and um, I have a therapist through South Bay. Um, but we have Bishop Boyd, who's um, a therapist who comes and talks to the group and another woman, from, Natasha from Roca, who's a therapist who talks to the group when it's like over the edge. And when I say angry, I don't mean to not be angry, but when you're going and trying to fight and be violent, angry yourself is not going to diffuse the problem. If we're, and when you're in that part of grief, you want to fight everybody. Cause I was there. I wanted to fight everybody and it didn't get me anywhere until I, until I got myself until I got more and wanted to do more and started learning, I started changing my ways. I'm still angry inside, but I'm not that angry where I want to go beat somebody up. I'm angry where I want to find some change. I want to get some justice. So some people do, when you're in the beginning stages of your grief, yeah, it's going to be, it's horrible. And some people's grief, I mean, I still have tears crying and yelling in the pillow and all that stuff and because it's frustrating but I just can't see myself going at it fighting and putting myself in a more situation and something happens to me well you you said uh you know fighting for justice your website is uh, springfieldjustice.org and you even said that uh, COVID kind of like slowed things down a little bit but I'm on your website now and I'm seeing I'm seeing marches with people wearing masks. I'm seeing Zoom meetings. You've been having some some Zoom. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So you're organizing it virtually as well? Yes, we're organizing. So when because I have my just got my office space in June. And so for um, some of us to, that don't want to come in, so it's not so piled up, we do Zoom. So we in the office and Zoom and at the same time. And we just had that vision of um a a vision of a non-violent Springfield and it was with um non the non-violent committee um Roca Lauren Holmes 
uh, Moms Demand Action. I think that's it and more. Um, so yeah, we did that and well, it slowed it down far as like doing a lot of stuff with the youth is where it slowed it down at, where we can like really get into a program with the youth. My office is too small. Maybe I can do one or two things with a couple of kids, but um, we've, we've been working on it. We made a, a library for the youth to come in and stuff inside the office. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing because uh, it sounds like you're getting to uh, the root of the change because a lot of communities will simply gentrify. They'll they'll just start forcing the the businesses in that are trendy and you know current, um, and they're not focusing on the the children the you know the future of that community. Um, have you had to sort of do battle with the development? Because I, I know Springfield does have some of that going on. Have you, have you, have you ever had to battle with that and say, no, it's not, it, it is kind of about that, but it's more about the youth. I am in that right now trying to battle with that. Um, I am in the, as this, at, at this minute, because I am saying it's about the youth and so, yeah, pe- some people say it's not, it's about the police brutality and, all, um, it's a little bit of everything, but what my goal is, is to get at these youth and these young adults and um, the mayor's on, this, on my side with that. Really fascinating, the police brutality, because that's been a topic that's all over now and rightfully so. Um, but it comes from somewhere. And, you know, without it, it, I'm not defending either way. You know, I'm not defending uh, Black Lives Matter and I'm not defending police in this uh you know, conversation, I'm saying both sides have have systematic problems and you need, you can, you can, you need to solve both of them. They need to come together. Um, how do you decipher that yourself and in your organization uh, when you have someone who's coming to you and they're, you know, so angry about police brutality or if you've talked to law enforcement and they're just so angry about the way the community treats them, how, how do you approach both uh, arguments? Well, I, um, I approach it as this. I've been on both sides. Um, I've been um, with the police brutality. And right now I'm looking at it as from a mother's point of view right now. I'm not. Uh, so that's all I can do is look at it as a mother's point of view. And as a mom, I want to try and fix it. So for me to fix it is not to keep picking and making blames is for us to get to the root of the problem on each side, get those, get those bad guys out of the street that's shooting these guns, that's shooting these people and get those bad guys out of the police station that's doing the wrong thing and let's work together and make stuff happen. And that's how I, that's how I look at it. We just got to get the bad apples out because all, all people aren't bad on, on my side who's doing a shooting. All police aren't bad. I need the police to help me figure out what's going on with my son, but I also want to have police that are going to truly help me. Absolutely. Yeah. Such a, uh, a powerful, uh, cause and mission. Um, I just thank you so much for spending some time with us talking about this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want one more quick question about the, the police. Is that something that you're working with, uh, the mayor on to, uh, maybe make some initiatives there with, with law enforcement or is that something in the works with, with the mayor? 
Um, right now, um, yes, when I went to meet him, um, Commissioner Clapborn was there and she told me about her youth groups and stuff that she got going on and that anything that I, I wanted to be a part, they would include me is the COVID though. But also I'm doing on my own because I go to the C3 meetings. I'm, I have a meeting with the sergeant for the Forest Park area where I live, where I want to work with them and just try and um, start here, start where I'm at right here in this area and we move it on to each area. I, I mean, I, I'm only one, you know, I can't do everything at once, but a start is somewhere. And um, he's willing to meet with me. He's, we're going to go meet for coffee. So I'm talking to the police. And yes, there's people who don't like that I'm talking to the police. But I'm not, um, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I want, to, I want change. I want my grandkids to grow up and be able to know that it, they can speak to a police officer. How am I teaching them if you, your address, if you don't know where you at, you're lost. And they're scared to talk to the police. No, something has to give on both sides. You're absolutely right. This is such, it's such a smart approach. Um, and uh, I see that you've got a petition out there as well. Yes. I just signed that now. Justice for our families, safety on our streets. You can find that at springfieldjustice.org. Yeah, check it out. There are a lot, a lot of great articles. And you uh, have a YouTube page, too, where you share your story. Yes, I do. Thank you. And we'll we'll make sure everybody knows where to find that information. And if anybody wants to help, if anybody, because you you know you're you're one person, but you're you're one voice that is pretty strong. Uh, where can they find? Uh, where can they get more information? Where can they volunteer? Um, you can go to my email, justice for more families at gmail dot com, or my business line is four one three five one seven four eight four two. Great. And where are uh, Daryl's children, your your grandchildren now? Who's are, are you taking care of them? I take care of them. I've been taking care of them since the day he passed. Yeah. And they are 7 and 13 now. And they were 7 and 2? 7 and 1. 7 and 1 when he passed. When he passed, yep. The baby turned 1 on the June 1st. The older turned 7 on June 2nd. And then he was killed June 4th. So it was Did, horrible. What have you uh, told them, especially the youngest, about their father? Um, everything good. Um, but they know that he was shot. They know mm-hmm. he's been on the news. Um, the oldest one is having a hard time, um, a very hard time. So that's another thing I didn't even get into. But the mental health it does to the kids. Um, so she's in and out of programs and stuff, and it's hard. It's hard on everyone, and his death doesn't start after, doesn't end after the funeral. It still keeps going. So wow. that's she's 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 who makes me want to deal with the youth so bad, watching her struggles. Yeah, I mean we we have conversations about secondary victims, but uh, this is so much more tragic because you know he had his life together. He he was raising two children he was going out and taking pictures the the night of it would be great grandmother's funeral and no fault of his own and uh and now you know his his oldest has to endure the pain of of that moment and you know for what so um hats off to you for your for your fight 
He's right, though. We we talk to a lot of advocates and and victims and secondary victims, and your strength uh, is is on a level that is, uh, I would say, maybe unparalleled in what we've seen. Thank you, thank you so much. I just want I just want to make a difference. I don't want my son's death to be in vain. 